So in the early 2000s, exposed to the often horrifying ways that kids were treating each other, Rosalind Wiseman decided to write a book that eventually was called Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping her daughter survive cliques, gossip, boyfriends, and the new realities of girl world. She had no idea what would happen when this book moved out into the world. But when it did, it exploded into the public's consciousness, revealing pervasive social cruelty, bullying, and injustice among kids and young adults, especially focused on girls. It also became a bit of a manifesto for a movement of change, leading her to develop curriculum and travel the world on a mission to teach parents and educators and teachers and community leaders and anyone else in a position of trust and influence for kids, how to create environments that foster more dignity and shared humanity. And along the way, she also did something radical. She invited those very kids and young adults to become advisors and contributors, giving them a genuine voice and developing the programs and the curriculum and the ideas that truly resonated with them. So now as uh, the founder of an organization called Cultures of Dignity, she's on a mission to work with communities to really shift the way we think about young people's physical and emotional well-being. It has not been easy, but she is committed to this and making a profound global impact with her work. It is truly making kids and young adults' lives better and in turn, the lives of their families and the bigger ripple is the state of the world. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. 
you have been on my radar for um, quite a number of years through my oh, yeah? wife, actually. Oh, okay. Um, she's okay. a number of times, she's like, she's doing such powerful work. This, I can't understand why this is not in every school no. around the country and around <laughs> the world. So it's great to be able to actually sort of like coordinate times Thanks. and be in the same time. Well, because yeah. I know you're on planes, trains, and automobiles all the time also. Yeah. I want to dive deep into a lot of the work you've been doing over the last few years and then some of the stuff you're doing right now. Okay. Let's take a step back in time, though, and um, sort of like trace a bit of the origin story. You're originally from D.C. I am. I am originally from Washington, D.C., um, and I lived there, grew up there, um, and then went to college and then in Los Angeles and then came back to D.C. and then was there and built a life there, you know, raised my kids for the first 10 years. And then we moved to Colorado. We just pulled up all of our roots and we just moved. What was behind that? Well, um, my husband really didn't like living in D.C. And he said, you know, I put 20 years into this and um, I'm really not I'm, I'm really not connecting to the culture here. And he was unhappy. And so we moved and we like took every we had we had a wonderful community in D.C. We lived in Mount Pleasant. We had a wonderful community, but we just uprooted everything and we moved to Colorado. Was Colorado the only place in play, or were you sort of like looking at different places? Um, well, so like a lot of people, you get to a place where you decide, well, where am I going to go? And Colorado becomes the place that, I mean, we're not unusual where you end up being in Colorado. <laughs> this is our, our journey was not unusual in the least. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, <laughs> not in the least. I know, feel it's, I, I almost feel like it's that um, if you haven't been here, you're like, okay, so I could see how that would be one of the five places that I would consider. But exactly. then once you come here, yeah. uh, friends who have lived in Boulder for years, I don't know if this is local, but like one of them said to me, yeah, like we kind of consider Boulder 10 square miles surrounded by reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You uh, So you start out in DC, um, you're out in LA, you go to Occidental. Um, yeah. What did you actually, you were, what did you study in Occidental? Oh, poli sci. Was that a passion of yours or was it sort of? It a... was. I always thought I was going to be a litigator, go to law school, oh, no you know, some kind of, I knew I was going to do some kind of advocacy. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I always knew that I was going to do some kind of advocacy. And I come from a family of attorneys, so I just felt natural to me to argue, you know, and to be able to advocate for oneself. Um, and basically, in some ways, there's actually a huge amount of correlation between what I ended up doing and um, and political science. So in fact, actually, much of the work that I do is based on political theory. So I just work in the world of young people. Mm. So you come out then. Um, Back to DC, and and I guess simultaneously with you studying poli sci, thinking I'm going to be in activism or law school. Yeah, um, you have a side passion, I guess you yeah. call it, in martial arts. Yes, where I does do. that come from? So what happened is the way I got there was that when I was in high school, I was in a relationship with a boyfriend that was really complicated and really unhealthy, and um, there, there was lots of reasons why you know he was having drug and alcohol issues. I was really confused by all of it. And it was extremely unhealthy. And when I got to college, um, I was always a competitive athlete. I was actually, I played tennis and always hated it, pretty much always hated it. But I played tennis and I went to college and I just hated it. And so I stopped doing it. And um, But I always needed to manage my, you know, sort of my energy and all of that kind of stuff. And it was just part of my day to work out. So a friend of mine um, got me involved in martial arts. And as soon as that happened, you know, I was a sophomore in college that, and I was taking political science and all of these things started to come together. 
about my empowerment, my sense of self and agency. And it just really struck me that at the time I talked about it in terms of women, I think this is appropriate for everybody, that um, if you've experienced some kind of abuse or violence or just being a woman in this world that have, you've been told that no matter how competent you are, you have to, you can't protect yourself. You can't handle that. That when you are given the tools to be able to do that, that it really changes the way that you see everything about yourself walking down the street in your relationships with people. And so my experience of martial arts was incredibly profound. And I am not the only person who's had this experience. Both men and women have had this experience. And it really hit me very hard. So I um, it I got obsessive about it. I got completely obsessive about it. And um, it was like the, it was the physical outlet that I had always – you know, looked out for and didn't know about. So I got really involved in it. And then I came back to DC after college to get a job. Mm -hmm. I was going to try and get a job in refugees and those kinds of, that kind of international work. I was really, really wanting to do that. But I was shocked at how hard it was to get a job. Mm. I was, I was so <laughs> surprised <laughs> that it was hard to get a job. I was like, wait when a minute. This is like 91, which is really bad for getting a job. That was a bad time to get a job. It, it was <laughs> so, a, right. I, I came out of law school like just after that. And mm -hmm. it was this time where for lawyers, it was brutally hard. hard. Brutally. Was just, there was the whole job market was kind of like in this really low then. Yeah. It was horrible. And so I freaked out. But at the same time, what happened is I, my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, had moved back to Washington with me. And we, um, I think the story, I think if I'm not mistaken, we were at some kind of holiday party. And, the, oh, yeah, this is right. And, you know, I come from a Jewish family of lawyers. And so, you know, it's not a big deal in my family to get a law degree. It is an enormous deal to get a black belt. It is so beyond my family's culture. It is so beyond. So when I, I remember going to these holiday parties and people were, were like, wait a minute, what? What did you do? Like, what What are you talking about? And it was just so different for in the culture that I grew up in. And so one of the things that happened was that some of the parents asked me, and I was 22 at the time, if I could teach their daughter self-defense. Mm. And so one of my better and worst qualities is that I say yes to things that I have no idea, like what I'm doing. So I said, yeah, yes. And my boyfriend, husband now, um, we both did it. And we went to this private school that my parents, my, my brother and sister graduated from. And there were like 25 girls that showed up. Oh, wow. And it was shocking. I was like, oh, well, this is easy. I'm H just going to- Had you taught anything before that? Well, I taught martial arts, but I had taught martial arts by that point. And um, I had my first degree black belt at that point. And um, I went on to get my second degree. And then, um, but we were really obsessed. I was really obsessed with how do we get women's empowerment yeah. with self-defense? And that was happening around the country. But also the thing that was happening was that I was listening to these young women who were truly like four years younger than I was at the time. And I was listening to them. And it was back when we were, and we're still talking about these issues, and unfortunately sometimes the same way, about date rape and about like the rights of women and how do women advocate for themselves. And I was really concerned, like deeply concerned, that we were giving people rights without the competencies and the skills to back up those rights. It was incredibly, it felt so naive to me to say, and it does to this day, to say, you have the right to do whatever you want, which by the way, of course, you have responsibilities to other people. But at the same time, also, you can't tell people that they have the right to do whatever they want without them being able to advocate for themselves or be able to take care of themselves, 
or to be able to have a realistic understanding of this context in which they're in. And I felt that we were giving girls these things, like these sound bites of what their rights were without giving them the skills to back it up. Yeah, it's like permission without power. Totally. Yeah. And I was completely annoyed by that. <laughs> and so I, I mean, because I, I think it's dishonest. I think it's incredibly dishonest to do that. And also just a waste of time, basically. And you're setting up, in this case, young women for being able to say, like, this is what I get without the ability to back it up. And I just thought that was intolerable. So I started listening to girls talk about what was going on in their lives that were getting them in situations where they couldn't or were struggling to advocate for themselves in sexual harassment situations and in, da in dating situations and relationships. And I started really listening to girls and it really started to hit me that the experiences that they were talking about also very much had this hidden thing in it, which is that they were very focused on how other girls were seeing them in those situations and that they were and that the more girls could support each other, the safer they would be. And if they didn't feel that support, what was going to happen? Mm -hmm. And then my brain just went like, what? Just went, what? What? Wait a minute. And I literally, I think it was six months later, after listening to this, uh, started a nonprofit with my husband and wanted to do the work I was doing for all different kinds of girls. And so I started working in teen parent programs and public schools and private schools all over the area. And just every day I would go to these schools and I would teach and I would make lots of mistakes. And the girls would look at me and be like, no, you're that. No, mm -mm, no, you know. And then some schools said, you know, because <laughs> this was back in the day when we didn't have like really codified programs like this. They're like, oh, you're, you're good with young people. Can you go talk to our boys about sexual harassment? So again, I was like, okay, <laughs> and um, and um, I really started listening to boys, and I thought, okay, we've got to be able to figure this out, and we've got to be able to listen to young people. And my biggest, I guess, epiphany was we cannot lecture to young people about their social lives or the decisions that they're making in their social lives or sexual interactions with each other without listening to them first about what their experiences are. I have to listen first, then I have to develop the content that I think is going to work for them, but that's not good enough. I have to have them actually critique it, and I have to have them keep critiquing it so that we keep looking at them as the subject matter experts of their lives, and then we give them the material that makes sense to them. And when I started doing that, that's pretty much what I've always done. At that time, and even today, how unusual is that approach? You know, I didn't even think about it at the time. I, like, I literally, it just seems so natural to me. Like, yeah. why would you tell people what to do when you haven't listened to them first? Or why would you not have young people critique what you do? It literally didn't occur to me to do it any other way. Subsequently, I have found that it is extremely rare to do that. We are still lecturing young people. Social media, are you kidding me? We lecture young people constantly about social media, and yet we don't ask them what their lives are like on social media. So it's actually still incredibly rare to have young people really be part of the conversation as we craft what they need. And that's different, for example, than like focus groups for young people because, oh, we know we're going to write a book or we're going to do a program. We're going to do focus groups. We're going to get young people in a room. We're going to ask their opinion. Well, that's extracting information from them. That's not asking them and, uh, and acknowledging them as the expert that they are mm. to craft with you the content of what you're doing. Yeah. And I, I mean, focus groups are also sort of like notoriously skewed because they're, as a general, whether they're teens or, you know, like 80 years old, 
they, there's like a script running in your head that says, what do they want me to say? And like, let me give them something that creates a good dynamic in the room and validates whatever it is that they're looking for rather than this, this ongoing conversation that says, no, your voice actually matters. And if we're wrong, tell us. Exactly. Do you have a sense that the fact that you came from completely outside of this world of academia and sort of like studying it and stuff like that <laughs> allowed you to come in and do something radically different in a way where if you had come up through sort of like, quote, the system, it, it, it wouldn't have happened that way? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, yes. I was talking about with two colleagues of mine who have lots of letters after their names, and yeah. they were laughing about that exact issue, that I never, ever would have been done what I did if I had been in academia, which is incredibly sad that academia wouldn't give that kind of flexibility, but you absolutely you've hit it on the head. And you know, I felt I it was it's really been a struggle for me. You know, I did a program when I was about 25 for a year, like a certification program at Harvard where I would go up once a month and do programs and and learn and, and things like that. But you know, and I've been and I've been trained and certified in all different kinds of uh, programs from um, trauma to you know young people in depression and curriculum, things like that. But I have never gone to graduate school for any of this. I've never. I don't have my PhD. I don't have any of this, and it's it has been a source of like, oh gosh, God, you know, how can I? How how do I have the ability to do this? Because now I teach teachers. That's mm -hmm. really right. And oftentimes people will introduce me as Dr. Wiseman. I'm like, I am not Dr. Wiseman. There's nothing in my bio that says that. I'm going to get caught for lying when I really haven't lied about so, my resume. Some point, <laughs> somebody has to give you an honorary like doctor. I know someone has to give you just, an honorary just so you can, like, say that. Yes, I am. Right. I am a doctor. <laughs> Why, yes, I <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's um, so it has been a point for me of like, oh my gosh, like I really, I should have gotten my graduate degree, but at the same time, and I've suffered as a result. There, are, I mean, in some ways, right? There's parts of the world that don't want to listen to me because I don't have a graduate degree. Absolutely, there's the more kind of established kinds of educational. There are parts of this the world that I work in that are not interested in what I've I've done because of that reason. But would I sacrifice the fact that I actually have a body of work that is based on something I'm incredibly proud of, based on working with young people from all over the world, all different kinds of demographics, that is a constant, in constant motion that constantly reflects young people's experiences? I mean, it's a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice worth taking. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, if you're, if the thing that you're really in this for is to make a difference, you know, then, okay, so it, I guess it's this juggling act over time where it's like, okay, so I could go back and, and get the PhD and do that, but the five to six years it would take me to do that, if I was just heads down developing and evolving curriculum and out there in the world and training and training and training, you know, like, what is the comparative difference, um, you know, of how I would spend those five or six years? Oh, my gosh, 100%. Yeah. And also when my career was, you know, so I ran this nonprofit for a long time and I made like $500 a week, right? Like I was, I, it was really, really tough times. And I mean, it was great. It was passionate. It was awesome. I worked with amazing people. We created this amazing organization. It was amazing. And I'm making like four, $500 a week. And, <laughs> and so... This thing happens where I decide – I'd written a book when I was like 25 called Defending Ourselves. And so it was all about self-defense. But it was also my experience with publishers where they don't listen to you, where you actually know the demographic better than they do and they don't listen to you about that. <laughs> so I had that experience. And I mean, it was fine. It was a, it was a lovely little book, um, very early 90s. And my hair is absurd on the back of the thing. It's like, wow, 
wow. <laughs> Um, but, um, and so then I percolated and really was in what you're like, my head was down working, um, for the next five to six years where I was doing all this work with young people. And then what happened is I write this, you know, I write, I have this title in my mind, this queen bees and wannabes title. And right when I'm doing this, I also start having children. So at that point I'm thinking, well, okay, graduate degree, how do I, I can't, there's no way, there's no way I can do this. And so I made a decision, which was, you know, work 80, 90 hours a week, have children, <laughs> have your career, take a really weird turn and uh, just go for it. Yeah. When does Queen, so you have this idea in your head for Queen Bees mm -hmm. and Wannabes. Mm -hmm. um, the book actually comes out 2002. It does. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. How how long was that concept and, and the book idea percolating? Like, what was the window mm -hmm. between when you're like, oh, this is a thing, and it actually goes out into the world? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. Um, and I actually I had had an agent for defending ourselves, and I gave her the idea. I'm not quite sure. I can't quite remember when I did, but she turned me down. And that was a bad decision on her part. Um, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've looked back on that and been like, oh, man, I wonder what that must have felt like. Because my agent, you know, you never know when something's going to be successful and you never know why. Like, truly, like, I'm not taking away from my work to say, and you really don't know why. I mean, it had a good title. It's like the 20-something publishers who passed on Harry Potter. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, well, ah. gosh, I mean, that's a huge right, comparison. But, but you know, you do. You never know. And you never know why something's going to be successful. You really don't. And so um, in any case, so I had found another person to represent me. And I had his card on my desk for a while. I mean, like a year. And I kept thinking, yeah, I really need to do this. I really need to do this. I just need to sit down and write a book that imagines – like what young, what adults need to understand about their daughters' lives because they don't seem to understand it or they seem to forget. You know, my life really changed at that moment. I mean, that really was like a demarcation. I had no idea. I was so involved in the work that when I finally got the proposal together and I remember going around to the publishing houses and everybody, like everybody we met with was like, we want it, we want it, we want it, we want it. Most of these people had teen girls mm -hmm. too. And they just – there was so much interest in it and I had no idea. I had no idea why. I had no idea about any of that. I was running a nonprofit making $500 a week, a month, if that. And, um, you know, just I remember – I vividly remember coming home to my friend's apartment in New York and hearing that there was a bidding war on the book and that Random House Crown had bought the book. They'd done like a preemptive bid. Yeah. And my agent calling me and saying, this does not happen. And I remember walking into her apartment and literally just like collapsing onto the ground because I just couldn't believe that this had happened. I just couldn't believe it. What was it? Why couldn't you? I don't know. I mean, because having, having spent years seeing like the vast volume and depth of the pain that was out there in the oh. world and, and the lack of connection, yeah. was it that you couldn't believe you like got a book deal that the concept was ready that it was that people were validating i mean it's a good question i guess i for a lot of i it a lot of things that seem obvious to me <laughs> are, um are not you know i have lots of experiences of like i get confused about like i was just so in it i was so in it that i i didn't even um i couldn't even I don't know. It just seems so obvious to me. And at the same time, I guess to see that all of a sudden um, it was obvious to other people because I was talking about it. I definitely was talking about it. And people would get really – well, two things would happen. I would talk about this work I was doing about girls 
And then two things, one would be that somebody would start talking to me about their experience of like middle school, which would go on for a really long time. Like whether like you cathar- you know, it's a cathartic moment of like, oh my gosh, I remember. And they'd say, tell me your name and all this kind of stuff. Um, or they would just would be completely mystified by it and have no idea what I was talking about. And so I don't know. I just, I just remember feeling like how – maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Like how could this be happening to me? And um, wow, people are finally getting what mm. I'm talking about. Maybe that was the combination of it. I just – it was absolutely shocking to me. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like – external validation at scale and with money behind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and truly like yeah. things things were rough. I'm not I mean, like no joke. Like running a nonprofit as a young woman is really rough. And I mean part of it is sexism. Um at the time, I don't know about now, but at the time most of on the outside I mean it looked somewhat successful, but most of the foundations were run by women. And I was getting grants that were like $5,000, $10,000 for like one time. And my male – I had a lot of male colleagues who were my age who were starting nonprofits too around the same time. And they were getting way more money, way more money, m- more money, multi-year. They just were taken so much more seriously than I was. And the majority of the people that were making those decisions were women. Hmm. <laughs> Lots to unpack there. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. I had some feelings about that at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Judging by the smile on just your a face. little bit. <laughs> just, I mean, just a little bit. Yeah. So you know that feeling when after a long, hard day, you come home, take a really hot shower or bath, then slide into bed at night and just kind of wrap yourself in sheets that are straight up yummy? It's the best. That is where Bolin Branch becomes your best friend. So Bolin Branch crafts the softest, most comfortable sheets and the only bedding loved by three U.S. presidents. Maybe the only challenge is you might just never want to get out of bed. For a limited time, you can get their luxury flannel bedding to keep you cool sleepers warm. And because they breathe, keep the warm sleepers cool. I don't know about you, but I kind of live in flannels, especially in the cooler weather, probably half the days of the week. And I love the idea of wrapping myself up in super soft flannel sheets at night too. Shipping is always free. You can try them out for 30 nights risk-free. And right now you get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com with promo code goodlife. Get $50 off at bowlandbranch.com, promo code goodlife. That's spelled B-O-L-L and branch. Branch.com code good life. So I really love what our friends at Four Sigmatic have created. They are a natural superfood company founded by a group of Finnish fun guys who are on a mission to popularize functional mushrooms and adaptogens by kind of incorporating them into mainstream products like coffee, tea, and cocoa, matcha, superfood blends, and more. And they make it super easy with single-serve packets, tins for at-home use, and even K-cup coffee pods. I rotate between nearly every blend that they offer. I've really been enjoying the mushroom matcha lately, actually. It's made with organic, ceremonial-grade matcha with one gram of dual-extracted and organic lion's mane mushroom per serving. And beyond the productivity and creative benefits associated with both matcha and lion's mane, they've included the adaptogen astragalus to support your body from occasional stress. And it's got just a hint of organic ginger to enhance digestion and flavor too. Then in case you're wondering why lion's mane mushrooms, turns out they have long been used by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation, which is pretty cool. And you 
can get 15% off your Four Sigmatic purchase by going to foursigmatic.com slash goodlife and using the code goodlife at checkout. Or just click the link in the show notes now and use the code goodlife at checkout. So when you when you actually you get you get to the apartment, you collapse, you realize like you've got a deal. Um mm-hmm. with a situation like that, you know, like generally that that means real money on the level that you had been struggling for a year to support the the foundation. Mm-hmm. How does that change what you feel you're capable of doing at mm. that time? No, that's such a great question. That when things like that happen, it's so complex because well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I have to work on the book now, right? Like, because right. I've sold the book and I only had right, one title and outline. I've sold the book. proposal. Right. There yeah. was no book. Um, there was one chapter. <laughs> there was a title. There was an outline. Um, so then I had to write the book. And so now what I'm doing is I'm probably 29, 30, and I'm running the nonprofit. I'm pregnant with my first child, and I'm writing the book. So, um, and then my first child, Elijah, was born in December, and I think the book was due. I mean, I just remember the first four or five months of his life. I am writing in between naps, his napping, <laughs> not my napping. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to balance these things as much as I can, which of course is a ridiculous concept. And so, what was easier was that people in my world, knew that I had a book deal and I was writing a book, but they didn't, but nobody had any idea that it was going to become this enormous thing. And I certainly didn't. And um, so we just, I so what we did, it really didn't immediately impact what we were doing. It didn't. It just, it, I, I was just focusing on the work and trying to get, just get through the day, right? And like sleep for a couple of right. hours a day. So for you, it's yeah. almost like it, it adds another substantial burden to oh, what you're huge, doing. Huge. And shifts, I mean, and then it's got to shift a lot of the sort of forward facing work into more sort of like internal generative creative work. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And you've got a newborn. And I have a newborn. Son. I have a newborn. It was a tough time. I mean, it was a – thank goodness Elijah liked – there was, you know, one of those little swingy things. And he really liked that a lot. So <laughs> thank goodness for that. But it really was – it was this enormous creative time. And it was very internal. And uh, and I, you know, I look back on it with a lot of fondness in some ways because – I didn't know how complex, for better and for worse, the success of this was going to be, right? So I was just doing this in this very, in this right. bubble of yeah. just creation. And I mean, if anything, you look back on the book that you had done a couple of years prior and say, okay, well, you know, like that's my track record. So like you can't really project forward. And like you said, the the publishing world is kind of the wild west. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> Super brutal. I mean, I knew by that point that I needed to work in partnership with them. Yeah. And so what I did do, because you know, I'm being the native Washingtonian that I am, like I knew that networking was incredibly important. So the other thing I was doing was I was going to every single association that I had had connection with by that point and was making connections with them about, okay, this is happening. I'm doing this. You know, I'm working. I'm doing it. I'm working. I'm working. I'm working on doing this. So I was really networking as this was happening at the same time. You know, and and that that was something that I really honed and really focused on. And that really, really helped me when the book finally came out. Yeah. I mean, so then the name Queen Bees and Wannabe is such mm-hmm. a fantastic name. Mm-hmm. The other thing that often happens in the publishing world is you come in with a name that you want. Oh, yeah. And the publisher, at the end of the day, has control, especially when you're sort of like younger in your career as an author. Yeah, like yeah. They can change the cover, the title, pretty much yep. anything. Yep. Was um, I'm curious, was there any internal dialogue around So there was that? no dialogue about the title. 
nobody, everybody was like, that's a great title. We're yeah. keeping that title. But there was a lot about the cover. And by that point, because I had had a lot of disagreement with my first publisher, and I think I was right, um, about um, what the cover should look like, I had a lot of opinions about that. And I, I just kept saying, I know the demographic. You don't know the demographic. I know the demographic. And by that point, I could also give it to um, the girls that were helping uh, me write the book yeah. and say, what do you think about this? And so it wasn't just me being the difficult author. It was, no, actually, I have 75 girls who are saying to you, yeah, they want to see this, they want to see that. I mean, the first cover was just ridiculous, just ridiculously 90s. It's just so like the girls have these big old hats. They look like Nirvana from like 1989. It's adorable. But there was no racial diversity on the cover of the book, and I couldn't stop that. So it was um, second time around. We did a much better job. So I've never really – the cover stuff is really hard. It always is. And, yeah, you have power when you're a successful author, but it's a tough one. It's a t it's always a tough one. Yeah, being – in the book space also, um, I, it's always such an interesting dance and the power dynamics are constantly shifting every time you go back to the table to have that conversation. Yeah. So the book comes out, mm -hmm. 2002. Mm -hmm. it, it becomes this literally global phenomenon. Does that happen right away or is it mm -hmm. more like a slow? Okay. Nope, it happens right away. So in um, about six weeks before the book came out, um, the New York Times um, Sunday Magazine did a cover story on me and um, the issue. And, they, and I'm the profiled person in it. And my life literally changed when that came out. The day that that came out, my life changed. I mean, by that point, I'd already been, book hadn't come out yet. I'd already been on Oprah twice. You know, I was in the media just starting to be like a talking head, but nothing changes your life like being, in my experience, like being on the cover of the New York Times magazine and being the subject of that cover story. And so that changed my life for a lot of different reasons. But all of a sudden, it was sort of like the graduate school that I didn't go to. Yeah, that was sort of like going to graduate school. Right. <laughs> right? Because like, you get that and everyone's like, oh, you know right, what you're like, talking about. You may have a PhD, but <laughs> I don't uncover the New York Times magazine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which would you prefer? Right, right, exactly. You become like the zeitgeist for like right. two minutes. So, um, But not for two minutes. I mean, for a while. So yeah, that was the shift. That was the huge shift. And that's when things got complicated. How so? Because everybody thinks you're way more successful or way have way more money than you have. Um, people get jealous. Um, people get, um, you know, it's just weird. It's weird to be to be the subject of something like that. That was, you know, it was just a lot. There was a lot going on. Like it, you just become the subject of and the spokesperson for this issue. And so now, now I have <laughs> that comes out. I'm still not getting any sleep with kids. I'm still running the nonprofit, and I'm handling maybe 20, 25 media calls a day. For, like, and this, and the book hasn't even come out yet. So um, there were six weeks in between when the magazine came out and when the book came out. And so my publisher, of course, was like over the moon. They were over the moon. I was just like, say yes to everything. Right, exactly. Yeah. I was just trying to like keep up. I could not believe what was happening. I just couldn't. I couldn't believe what was happening. Yeah. So it's like from that day, you're kind of holding on for dear life. Exactly. And then the book comes out six weeks later, mm -hmm. explodes into the scene. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing then just the spotlight piles on and, mm -hmm. and gets magnified dramatically. Mm -hmm. What did... So there's the complicated side. There's the taking away from personal time. There's the managing all this mm -hmm. new stuff coming at you side of things. With the blend of the publicity you were getting and the message of the book and the success of the book and the reach of the book, how does that change not just your personal trajectory and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but also what's possible for the message that you have, the program you want to develop, the impact you want to have? <laughs> it's just, 
Oh, my goodness. So the reason that I'm laughing about that is because the complication with queen bees and wannabes and the subsequent book I wrote a couple – several years later, um, Masterminds and Wingmen, is that I find it helpful to label behavior and to mm. put words to things that people don't put to words. I'm always looking for how to do that, how to just make things that we all know to be true to be able to talk about them more easily. Right. So that's been a real focus of mine for my entire career. So one of the results of that is coming up with these labels for social dynamics of girls like queen bees or bankers or um, pleasers or wannabes or whatever. And and I did it with boys as well, with boys helping me. And it's helpful to a point because human beings naturally slot people's, you know, they right. you analyze. Even right. though you say you don't. Right. You that's do. That's where your brain works. You, exactly. Yeah. But I was always saying, and every subsequent um, edition of Queen Bees, I try and do it m more to the point. I was always saying, this is a label to understand one's own behavior or the behavior of other people around you. But you are not stuck in this one place and one label for your entire life. And it's not helpful to go around and say like, oh, she's that, she's that, she's that, she's that. Because it's a way of not looking at one's own behavior. Mm. And one of the things that was really frustrating to me, and it was one of the reasons I stopped even talking about these labels, ironically, like I have this book called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And if you have me come to a parenting you know, lecture, I'm not talking about that. And the mm -hmm. reason is because parents were so focused on, well, now I understand this girl that I don't like that's a friend of my daughter's or has been mean to my daughter. She's this, this, and this, and this. And I thought – and I, it was so – Frustrating because I wanted people to be able to understand behavior so that they could do – they could have more agency over themselves and be able to speak in ways that they could be taken more seriously by other people. So the more you understand yourself and the power dynamics around you, the better you're able to do that. So – and that's really difficult. And it was also really difficult and understandably difficult for – we're talking about academia. For people in academia because what I was doing was I was very – very in, – in, in very reductive ways. I was simplifying behavior. And that doesn't do justice to the complexity of people's behaviors and motivations. And it also went up against, and I totally agree with this, that um, it gets it, – there's a fine line between being able to see girls' behavior this way and also being able to superficialize girls' behavior and mm. not take it seriously. And so um, – and that was really something that for better and for worse that was happening with with this work was that people were – some people saw the complexity of it, and it really, really helped them, really helped them. And I was so grateful for that. And then I think that in some ways it was, you know, when I, I remember going into like a Walmart and seeing a queen bee's backpack, and I just, you know, I was like, that's, that's, just, that's just not what this is about, right? I mean, I saw – like I would see T-shirts of like, my daughter's a queen bee. Like that was a good thing to be. I was like, okay, well, that's not cool, you know. And it was really, it was sad for me, and um, and it was understandable that, you know, you see something that labels people, and people don't want to give it the complexity that it's due. Yeah, it's the you know, it's the upside and the downside of having something like that. Is on the one hand, it distills it and simplifies it on a level where you can have. All of a sudden, like these, the the core concepts enter the public conversation. Yeah, it becomes part of the zeitgeist, and millions more people are actually having the conversations, which is a good thing. But then, on the other side, they're missing a level of nuance, which allows you to really get to a deeper set of sort of like 
observations, behavior changes, and resolution, and and like really make a difference. Yeah, um, that how, was important to me. There was right. a lot of stuff in there about racism and homophobia and classism and all of this stuff, and people weren't asking me about that. And um, and so it was it was just this stuff on these labels. And so I was like, wait a minute, there is so much going on here that contributes to how girls show up in the world that we need to look at and understand. And so it was, it, you know, it's just been a real thing for me to negotiate and navigate, yeah. you know, as it, since it's come out. I mean, so so how does that, you know, because, you know, we're sitting here in 2019 now, so this is 17 years since mm -hmm. then. And there's been a whole lot of new stuff that you've developed. But after that comes out and you're seeing how it's actually landing, What's your response to that? You know, like you get months or a couple of years into that and you see this pattern repeating. Mm -hmm. um, how do you then say, okay, how do I harness the best of what's been created by this and redirect it so we can now take it to the next level mm -hmm. and sort of like not just have the conversation locked into sort of like these reductive terms that people seem to keep reverting back to? Yeah. Um, so I think my commitment is to have young people constantly review and critique my work. Mm. And so I throw out, I let go of things constantly. I just threw out um, something. So in Queen Bees and Wannabes, there's this thing called Fruit Cup Girl, which I loved. I had a deep affection for Fruit Cup Girl because it was this moment when I was teaching with these sixth grade girls. And one of them admitted during class, it was this big, wonderful moment of like vulnerability and all this where she said that she had gone to a field trip and she, there was, a, it was at lunchtime and she couldn't figure out, she, she couldn't figure out how to talk to this boy. So she pretended she couldn't open her fruit cup so that she could go over to the boy and ask to open the fruit cup. And there was this, we just did this whole debate and it, this was so wonderful and it was so fun and so great. And it was so actually wonderfully feminist, amazing, like these 12-year-old girls are sitting there talking about self-agency around a fruit cup and what do you give up and what do you gain in the moment of I'm pretending I'm not as competent as I am because I want to be able to connect with somebody. So I'm going to fall back on these stereotypical tropes of women's incompetence, right? They are 12 years old and they're talking about this. It was such a great, such a great moment. Um, and so I love Fruit Cup Girl. And so I'm doing literally just like a couple months ago, a couple months, not maybe a month ago. I have these high school inter, uh, high school editors who are going through some of the lesson plans that I do, and I'd kept it in there for one thing. And all of them, all of them said that it was bad and it had to come out. And it was so sad. It was so sad. <laughs> it was like, you're not, really? We're going like, to let go of Fruit I love Fruit Girl. girl. <laughs> and, but, but they're the experts. And so yeah. I very, it took me a couple days. I had to have a, like a little thing. <laughs> but we, I got rid of Fruit Cup Girl. There's no more Fruit Cup Girl because I had a group of young people look at me like that. You know, young people give me this look sometimes of like, oh, you're nice and we like you and that you're doing you're doing your best and you really have to stop doing this one thing or like it, you really do so this is another curiosity <laughs> of mine right because when you start you're in your early 20s yeah and like you said and you're way back in the day where it's sort of like transitioning martial arts but also oh, really yeah. women's empowerment mm -hmm. um and even sort of like so you're not actually that far away age-wise from oh, the yes. women and girls you're talking yes. but over over time over a couple of decades you know like <laughs> The, the age difference starts to- It gets like, bigger and bigger. Right. So at, a, at some point, like in the early days, it's like, okay, relatable, you know, like, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. But then like, there's got to be like this moment where it's kind of like, huh, okay. Oh, it's awful. It's not, yeah. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> I remember turning 36 really distinctly and thinking, I am twice as old as the senior girl kid, young people that I work with. 
right? And so as these years have gone by, you're like, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, I'm so like, oh my gosh, I am so not them, right? And I clearly am not them. And um, and so it's something I think about a lot. And there are times when I do feel like, do I have the right to be in this position that I'm in, basically? And the only way that I feel that I have the right, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that I really felt like I had to stop being the talking head and, you know, just running to an interview um, and saying what I thought was true. Because at a certain point when you become a talking head, this is my experience at least, that you lose the contact that you have with your source material basically. And I just felt like – I mean I remember at one point being on a morning show and I was on about something and I thought to myself right right before like the little red light went on, do I have the right to be talking about this? Do I know what I'm talking about? Like who – what young person, what group of young people have I talked to that gives me the right to speak about this? And I couldn't come up with any. And I was – it really it really hit me really, really hard. And so um, it was – that moment was really a start of like what am I here to do and why? And um, And so that goes back to your question about as I get older, if I'm feeling like I'm in contact with and, and more to the point, more in relationship with young people, then I feel that I have the credibility to be able – in some way – to be able to represent them, and even more importantly, to be able to look for ways to give them a platform to be able to speak for themselves. Mm. Does part of that involve with your current work um, or in the plans, putting them forward as yes. as representatives yes. and spokespeople and advocates for their own community as Yes. Well? And so one of the things, like I haven't done this in a while, and actually it's the first time I've talked about this, is um, because it's pretty it's pretty brand new, is lads up a couple of weeks, is... Um, so I, you know, I I just finished this enormous curriculum. Um, I've had this curriculum called Owning Up that I've been working on forever. Right. That was a social justice. Piece, yeah, it's a right? social. Yeah, yeah. it's like an anti-bullying prevention right. program. But I don't like using the word bullying because kids hate that word. So I've been differentiating. So basically, not get too much in the weeds. It was it went from being this like middle school thing to being a class to being classes lessons for grades separated by grades, which is if you're in education, that's an enormous undertaking. It was a total slog. Um, I'm actually not quite done. And but I'm really, 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 really close. And um, so I've been working on this for like the last two years and really like down in doing this work and talking to teachers about what they need and what young people need and expanding all the social media stuff that we're giving them and just giving teachers the lessons that they can do that will not be so intolerable to young people because this kind of work that happens in schools is is like kids don't like it. They really don't like it and they have good reason to not like it. Like, hi, boys and girls, let's talk about your friendships. I mean, that's awkward and weird, even under the best of circumstances. So I've been doing that like intensely. And then I thought about three or four years ago, three, three or four years ago, that's funny, three or four months ago, maybe I'm ready to write something else. So I, then I thought about it like a book and I was like, eh, let me let me tussle that around for a little bit. And then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to write a book right now. I'm working with young people. I want to do something visual. And so what I'm doing, and we just made an agreement with Bloomhouse, the production company, the film company that did like all of like Get Out and yeah. Us and all those things. So they have a document, they have a news documentary division. And I've just signed an agreement with them to put together, we haven't sold it yet, 
it's really in its infancy, to put together something about having young people come forward about the things that they are dealing with in life and doing mm -hmm. it as a docu-series. And um, so my plan is to be on camera, but to allow and to really facilitate young people to come forward. So for example, everything about snitching is actually a really complicated issue from the tiniest of things that you're going to report on to the most enormous of things. And so why and on, why do young people report? Wh what is the world they're living in in a, in a school system where school shootings are happening and where young people have the highest level of anxiety that we have ever seen, ever seen as we have been evaluating these kinds of things? The reporting takes on a whole life of its own. There's an anonymous reporting system that's somewhat complicated called Safe to Tell, which does wonderful things and also can be manipulated by kids. So there's a whole world of that. And I want young people to be able to say what that feels like and what it looks like because we see it on the news of when something horrible happens. Why didn't anybody say anything? Why did the kids record it and they didn't do anything about whatever it is? I want the young people to be able to explain the world that they're living in and do it in a visual medium. So that's what I'm actually just about to start working on. That sounds amazing. So it's it's really about choosing a medium and a format um, and a channel that is native mm -hmm. to them, to young people, and also allowing them to sort of like share in their voice. It's really about educating adults. <laughs> it is. It um, is. But, but it in is. a way where um, young adults actually get to do it in sort of like the most native format to them and the most comfortable. And I guess probably the, in a way that they can feel that they'd be most honest. Absolutely. And I mean, we could do one. There's so many things we could do. But like, you know, memes, just the concept right. of memes. Memes are not like in some ways they can be really stupid and um, silly and whatever. But memes actually can be hugely political and, ha and have tremendous amount of meaning. Like eighth grade boys, who we don't usually associate with like tremendous meaning and profound depth of thinking, they can have very deep memes about the way in which they're communicating with each other. Group texts of boys. I, I want to do a, just a, a show on group texts and boys because that is their place. Like boy, young people are always trying to create uh, privacy in the public sphere of social media, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like the most public of places, but they're always trying and doing pretty well sometimes at creating privacy within those spaces. Group texts for boys are intensely intimate, like who they let into those groups and what they're saying in those groups and um, the freedom to, to say what they feel and in all different kinds of ways, like that's huge. And most parents have no clue that that is as important in boys' worlds as it is. Yeah. In, in fact, I would almost imagine that most parents feel the exact opposite, like put your phone down. Stop, oh, for like, sure. Go hang out with these people. Like, you know, like, you oh, know, for sure. Instead of having a dozen like kids on a group text, like just go somewhere, be face to face. And, and yes, like I can actually see the benefit of that. And I can see, you know, like the, um, but at the same time, and this is why it's so funny because I've had so many conversations around, you know, like people on the age of 25, basically, and the reliance on technology mm -hmm. as, as a social mechanism. And I think, you know, I'm 53. Um, people my age are kind of like, it is the worst thing in the world. I can't understand it. Like, because we didn't grow up. It's, it's not, it's not in any way sort of part of our experience in the way that we relate, we relate to other people and we only see the downside of it. But similar to you, I, I mean, there is so much upside. There is, there's so much potential to harness technology and social technology and something as simple as group text for real good. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think we, I mean, to be able to actually have young adults sort of like show us that 
um, without necessarily showing us what's in the group text. Oh yeah, because but actually demonstrate so the fact that like, lots of times, like right. we're not just being lazy. We're not just you know like wasting time. We're not just sort of like ignoring the world around us. But this is what's sustaining us sometimes through massive anxiety leading to depression. Um, and this is what's actually making us remotely okay. I think that is a message that old folks like me really need to hear. Yeah, we do. We need to hear a lot of things, actually. <laughs> we, I mean, I, I am so. Um, what else are you seeing? Like, what, what else are you feeling? What feel else like am is, I seeing? Oh yeah, my gosh, how much time is really you? All right, well, <laughs> Okay, I mean, my big one, which I've been working on significantly for the last. Oh gosh, I mean, for my whole my whole career, but I've just gotten much more focused on it in the last couple of years. Is this difference between respect and dignity? And how much young people are being um, – that the word respect is being manipulated. So schools love to use the word respect and adults use to, use, love to use the word respect. And respect actually is across the board in all different kinds of cultures, this thing of respect your elders, right? That's just what we do. And you know, if you're listening to this, like I really want you to hear me. I'm not saying like don't respect your parents just off the bat, right? Or don't respect your grandparents or your teachers or police officers or things like that, politicians. But the issue is, is that respect, what it, what it actually means is to admire someone's actions and the position they have because of those actions. So in Latin, it means to look back and admire someone. Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes from. And it is imperative to be able to acknowledge that people who are in positions of respect use their position to get away with abusing power. And yeah, we all know the experience of having to show respect to someone that we don't respect, and it's enraging. And young people have this experience more than at any part of your life. That is when you're going to have that experience, and especially if you're a person of color. And so, it is imperative. There are all these people, young people in this country, who hate going to school. They have good reason for hating going to school. They can't see the relevance of what they're learning. And it, there are adults who are using their position to go after them. And then there's other well-meaning adults who don't know what to do when they see those adults do that. There is good reason why young people don't like going to school. And yet we say to them, you have to respect us, you have to respect us, you have to respect us. Or give it another way. Like if you're in seventh grade and a group of kids go after you on social media and just horribly humiliate you, you go to your teacher and you say – or an adult and you say like these kids are doing this to me. It is a normal reaction from a teacher, even one who goes to like uh, teaching college, where they will say – you don't have to be friends with this child, but you do need to treat them with respect. And when the child hears that, they're like, why? Why would I have to do that? They're making my life miserable. They're telling me to go kill myself. You're telling me I have to respect someone who's telling me that I have to kill myself? And so it disengages the child and it makes them feel like adults have no clue what's going on. And when it happens with adults where you talk about an adult doing that to you and the, adult said, the other adult that you're going to says, well, they're an adult, so you have to respect them, it is enraging. It is enraging. And it also, for young people, makes them silent about the abuse that they're, that they're experiencing. So, I mean, one of the reasons why the church, the, our religious communities have been so – and people within those religious communities have been so effective at abusing young people or coaches or teachers or any adult who's been with, who's been with children, one, if they're going to abuse children, one of the most important reasons why they can do it is because of their position of respect because young people know that you can't go up against that. And so, and it doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It can be psychological and uh, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, humiliation. 
I mean, think about a coach who's screaming at a young man who, you know, I don't care how big he is. He could look like, you know, he could be six foot eight. I don't care. And a coach is screaming at this guy, this kid. And if this young man looks away because he's being screamed at, which by the way, in their brain development, I mean, just human beings don't like being screamed at two, two inches away, but in their brain development, they literally are in a fight or flight mode. So the young man is doing everything he can in that moment and is like 17-year-old self, 16-year-old self, and he looks away right, from the coach as he is being screamed at. And that looking away is being seen as defiance. That is insane. And adults use that to then go and discipline or, excuse me, punish young people for for disrespect and defiance against adults. We do not understand nor what we don't understand or won't acknowledge the hypocrisy of our behavior. So for me, this word of respect is so co-opted in schools or with young people that it is a way to make them comply with whatever messed up situation they're in. So instead, like that's the bad part. The good part is if we use the word dignity to be worthy and it's a given. So if I say to a seventh grader, hey, that is horrible that those kids are telling you that. You don't have to be friends with those kids and you don't need to respect their actions, but you do need to treat them with dignity. And dignity Mm -hmm. means to me that you don't go after them or you don't this or that. Let's figure out how we can do this. Now, that's not the perfect, perfect answer. I've had a young person come up to me um, that I've been working with and said, you know, I don't even know why I should treat a teacher with dignity who, like, gave me a humiliating nickname and then let all the other kids humiliate me with that same nickname in class for the whole year. Why should I treat that person with dignity? I don't know the answer answer to that question, but at least we have to have the conversation. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost like um, respect is earned, dignity is born. Exactly. Respect is earned. It always has been. The other other thing that's really empowering is is that it looks the same. It basically looks the same. And when I say to young people, especially ones who've been like really um, hate school um, and are seen as like, you know, sort of have authority problems and that kind of stuff, is that if I say to them, hey, look, look, showing someone dignity and showing someone respect actually looks quite similar on the outside. But you know in your heart that it's totally different because I'm telling you that you don't need to respect the actions of an adult who's abusing power. But you do need to treat them with worth. Let's figure out what that looks like to you. The holiday season is here, which can add a lot of tasks to our to-do list, demands to our lives, and rushing around all over the place, and even a touch of stress, which means good sleep becomes so important now so you can keep feeling good and energized and grounded. The new Sleep Number 360 smart bed can help you get proven quality sleep. And it's also the best bed for couples. Sleep Number beds, they let you adjust each side independently to suit your ideal firmness and comfort and support. And the Sleep Number 360 smart bed actually senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. During the ultimate Sleep Number event, save an incredible 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed for a limited time only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 600 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find one near you at sleepnumber.com slash goodlife or just click the link in the show notes now. Yeah, I mean, thinking about it, it feels like respect is about in addition to sort of like being earned and being born, like respect is about behavior. Mm-hmm. Dignity is about humanity. Exactly. It's about acknowledging the fact that somebody may be 
doing behaving in a way which is completely offensive. And underneath all of that, there is still a human being who may be suffering in profound ways, who may be dealing with their own things, who who has some level of self-worth. But yeah, I can I can see how if you're being treated in a way that is abusive, that is horrible, to then say, um, okay, let alone, you know, there's no way you can respect that person because it's just the behavior is so not validated or to then look at the person who's like, the, who's behaving this way and saying, but you still have to treat them with dignity. It's gotta be so hard. You still have to go searching for where is the humanity behind the behavior that still makes them worthy of dignity. That's, forget about kids. Yeah, you know, like for grown adults, it's that really is a tough. brutally hard proposition. It's a brutally hard proposition. But this is the thing about why I love working with young people. Because when you actually have these conversations with them, yeah. they're like, oh my, it's basically like, oh, finally, someone's talking about this. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, thank you so much. And they, like, you have young people who, uh, you know, who start with me who say, oh, this is going to be so stupid, right? Like all of this stuff is because because of this stuff, you have to respect people. You have to be kind. You have to be nice. What in the world does that mean? Especially when people are being horrible to you. So it is imperative that we have these conversations because young people want to have them and they will come forward and talk to us and they will be able to actually engage in ways that are much more meaningful. And they will tell us when things are going wrong because you know, t- adults are still abusing young people right now. I mean, and we've got like for like I'll just say something super extreme. We have child pornography online that is unprecedented, unprecedented. It is disgustingly, nauseatingly horrible. Well, how can we get a young person who goes to school who might have a person in their family or an extended person, neighbor, whatever, who has somehow been able, because of a weak family structure or whatever it is that has made them vulnerable, that they are exploiting that child? There has got to be a teacher or someone in that school who sees that child, who just connects with that child, and that is and treats them with dignity. And it's the feeling of being treated with dignity and being seen that that young person is so much more likely to go to their math teacher, their science teacher, their school resource officer, their counselor, that if they feel that way, they can then talk about, with a little bit more likelihood, they can talk about this nightmare that they are dealing with at home. And that's an extreme example, but it's not something that it's, but it is happening. And so we need, we'd like desperately need young people to be able to come forward and say, hey, I know you see me, so I'm going to trust this adult. Mm. I'm going to trust this adult because they see me. That is life-changing for young people. So how do we get those adults to be in a position where they're actually, they have the skills, the abilities to, I mean, I mean, because yeah. take teachers, for example, okay? Because we could literally talk about every Forever. every yeah. person in the yeah. community of adults who could yeah. potentially play that role, but mm-hmm. teachers, yeah, like the, we, we look at the average teacher who's like goes into the profession because like it's noble, they want to help, they love teaching. Very quickly, they find out that there's a, a lot of bureaucracy and complexity around that. Um, so already a lot of teachers are struggling just to function within the system that they're in. They're going out of their their own pockets to pay for supplies. They're working tons of hours just to kind of keep up and be there for purely the academic needs of the kids. To then go to to those teachers or administrators, support people within the school and say, there's a whole nother level of stuff that's happening in your kids. Um, You may or may not be aware of it, but it's happening. And you could potentially be the person who can be hugely catalytic and then being okay but 
you also need to make yourself available on a whole different level and you need to go and, and get a, a profoundly different set of skills to play that role. How do you, and I know that's a big part of your mission, mm-hmm. how do you negotiate that tension? Yeah, it's a, uh, gosh, um, you ask really good questions. Um, so that's why you know I, I shifted what I did about two, three years ago. And I started this company called Cultures of Dignity with this young man who had, who's not so young anymore, he's getting older, um, <laughs> who, um, named Charlie Kuhn, who um, started with me when I was writing the boys book and then quit his job to work with me full time. And then we started this company called Cultures of Dignity. And the reason is to do is to answer what you are saying, which is to work with teachers to give them the skills, but also to say to them, you do not need to be a counselor. You don't because that's you don't need to go back to get a master's in counseling to be able to be a math teacher. It's not what we're saying. But we are saying that we can give you some skills to be able to handle when a young person comes to you. So, for example, if a young person comes to a teacher, they're going to come to the person they have the most relationship with, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to go to a math teacher. They're going to go to an English teacher, a Spanish teacher. If you like children, one of the things that happens with teachers that they don't talk about, and we think that teachers should be able to do everything, right, is that teach Spanish. And also, if they're good teachers, then they're, you know, a child's going to come up to and say, hey, guess what? My family's in an abusive relationship or I've got an immigration issue. That's been a huge, huge issue for us in the last couple of years is young people terrified of immigration status, not maybe of themselves, but of their cousins, of their moms, of their dads. And math teachers are taking in, for example, these this kind of anxiety. And we're not teaching them how to handle that anxiety. So we are teaching them how to handle when a young person says to a teacher, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Which is never going to be a second. Um, And they say something like, you know, the kids are bothering me. Well, because usually young people will start off with a very general question because they're sort of sussing out like Mm, how you're going to respond. And so the answer to that is not, oh, don't let them bother you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Just show that you're a stronger person, which are understandable things to say, but are absolutely seen as a blow off is to say instead, oh my gosh, can you tell me a little bit more about that so I have a better understanding of what's happening so I don't make assumptions? And then they tell you, and then no matter what the answer is, you say, I'm really sorry that's happening to you. Thank you for trusting me to tell me. Let's sit down and figure out what's our next best steps about this. So it's giving us boundaries for the teachers and it's saying to the young person, like, I can be in this conversation with you. When we give teachers, this is the thing, teachers can be really burnt out and they can say things like, not one more program, don't give me one more program, right? When I get teachers who come in and they're like, oh gosh, I'm so exhausted. I just, ugh, I can't, I don't want to do anything more. And I'm like, I get it. I totally get it. When we give them these very, these scripts and when we give them, they make them their own, but when we give them these, these things of here's what you can do and here's what you don't have to do, there's some boundaries for you about what, how to take care of yourself Jaded, cynical teachers move forward so fast Mm. and they're so grateful and they are like, oh my gosh, thank you for telling me what I can say to these young people. And then they're there and then we can expand from there. So that's what we do is we are working in all different kinds of capacities with schools around the world right now to be able to give teachers a way to be successful in their relationships with their students and in a way that is um, safe for the for the teachers and appreciates and acknowledges where what they're up against, and also how to be able to give them a way to say, okay, I've now reached my place where I just can't I, ca- I can't do this anymore. Now I need to go to somebody else. We are giving them a blueprint and a path to be able to move forward, and we're also bringing young people in so they can be a voice 
to help us understand how to do that in the best way possible. So we're always looking and working with schools to figure out how to create places where young people can have more voice and give more of their expertise so that the school is more informed by their experiences. Yeah. And, and I would imagine it's, um, it's not just about scripting or templating the moment, but it's also about how it's almost like um, the nature and the quality of the ongoing relationship that you develop, like the, the, the culture that you create in your classroom. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, remember a couple of years ago, I, I think it was now, um, we had Michael Reichert on um, who did this like really fascinating study on boys. And he was saying that they, you know, they asked like the young adults, not the, not the adults, what are the different elements that would make it like most conducive to learning, to actually trusting your teacher and learning? And and by a huge margin, the single biggest one was the the relationship with the teacher. And and because he, and he, you know, he said people always thought boys weren't relational. They didn't need that Such to flourish in class and to right. actually learn. Yeah. And he's like, it is the exact opposite. Like that is the single most important thing. And it wasn't, it was across all genders yeah. um, right yep. now. And it's I so, love Michael's it, work it makes, too. Yeah, it's, it's so yeah. fascinating. So actually just to give you like some hope with this is that yeah. one, of the most, I, one of the most successful things that we do with teachers when we're doing our teacher trainings and programs, one of the things we start with is we ask them, when you were a young person, like the age of the children that you teach now, who was a person in your life that was in any capacity a teacher that you respected or you disrespected and why? And so then we give them some time to really think about that and talk about that. Even like, and I'm including like super jaded teachers, right? Who are like walking into my training thinking this is going to be a waste of time. <laughs> and then we say to them, okay, so now, now what I want you to do is think about how did that relationship and that experience with that person inform the way that you work with young people today? And they just need, they, we just need to give them a lot of time. I mean, teachers have these moments of, oh my gosh, that's why I got into teaching. I didn't even realize that in this moment, right? I had a tech teacher who was who saw me every day and I was having a miserable life because for whatever reason, and it was my place. It was my, it was my oasis. And I, oh my gosh, I became a tech teacher. <laughs> so it's really powerful. They just need the time to remember. And the negative ones can actually be incredibly powerful too, of course, is Many teachers will say, I had a teacher humiliated the kids in class, and I promised myself I would never be that person. These are really important experiences that mm. teachers need to remember. And then when they remember, it gives them a whole new sense of purpose. And they also remember, based on the question that you very astutely said a little while ago, what is the connection between academic, academic competencies and social emotional learning and social, the social lives of young people? And if you cannot create a space in a classroom where young people will take the risk to learn, which means to maybe be wrong sometimes, that they're going to disengage. And so actually these things are absolutely intertwined with each other. If a teacher shows up and sees young people – makes a mistake like I did last year with a group of seventh grade boys. I made a mistake where I was super sarcastic with them. And I said something really snarky. It was like three of them together. And as soon as I said it, I thought, I was like, oh, God, why did I say that? That's bad. That's bad. That's like exactly what I would, I would always tell teachers never to do. And I felt awful about it. And I was like, I was obsessing about it. And I was like, how am I going to talk to them? Because I can't make a big deal out of it because then they'll freak out and all this stuff. It'll be weird and awkward and all of that. But I need to do it. And so the next time I ran into two of the three of them, I remember having a moment of nervousness because a lot of teachers think that if you apologize, you lose power, which actually, of course, is the opposite. 
So I, I call them over and I always say to teachers and parents, like pretty much all meaningful conversations you can have with kids, especially boys, you can have in like a minute, right? If they want to talk more, great. But like you can pretty much like three minutes tops and don't repeat yourself. So I said to the boys, hey, you know that thing I did yesterday when I was talking to you? I'm really sorry about that. And of course, the boys looked at me and they said like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you have this moment of like, am I going to repeat this horrible thing that I said? <laughs> no, I'm not, right? So I said, well, you know, I just want you to know that I feel bad because I feel like I came across as sarcastic and I need to apologize and I'm really sorry about that. And the boys went from pretending they didn't know what I was talking about to their whole face and their whole bodies changed and said, oh, cool, great, excellent, wonderful. Like, you know, see you in class tomorrow. And I was like, the whole movement, the whole moment shifted. And I had those boys from being disengaged to being way more engaged in the next class because that relationship was built with me saying, hey, I care about you enough to realize that I just realized I did something wrong to you and I need to take responsibility for that. Yeah. And also model, I mean, modeling integrity and responsibility from somebody who like they very likely perceive as being like, well, you know, there, there's always a front. Like, yeah. And that's, that is like the type of behavior that I would imagine is the thing that earns respect. Um, and then treats them with dignity. Right, and treats them with dignity. It's yeah. sort of like the, they're, the two blended together. Yeah. As we sit here um, having this conversation, we are in the throes of a political season mm -hmm. and, a, and a climate, mm -hmm. not just in the U.S. We have listeners from around the world, mm -hmm. and, and we see this happening all over the world right now, where... Um, anxiety is rampant, fear is rampant, and it feels like civility and and the recognition of the humanity of people who don't look and see and believe the things you believe has been greatly diminished. How, I, I know you're developing lesson plans that sort of like speak to this in a certain point. Mm -hmm. what, what are, what's bubbling in your mind around this right now? Well, um, you can imagine what I think about Betsy DeVos, our educational um, secretary, just nauseating. Her policies nauseate me. I don't, so I won't – you can imagine, I will say. And just, that's all just on my, on my particular, you know, um, venue or my particular area. And, I mean, our president gives a really, really good example of not respecting someone's actions, for my opinion, and that you need to treat them with dignity. And that's a tough one. And it's really a place of, for me, about practicing what I preach, which I really believe. So all to say, actually, and I work in really conservative communities and I work in really liberal communities. And my experience with really conservative communities is they're not as conservative as they think they are in a lot of ways. And liberal communities are not. And progressive communities like the community we're in right now in Boulder is not as progressive as it thinks it is. So to specifically what I'm doing is I'm creating um, with Cultures of Dignity and some other wonderful colleagues um, in the United States, we are creating um, lesson plans and materials and resources for schools on the election, on the upcoming election, because we were caught flat-footed last time. And there were a lot of people who got so upset about the outcome of the election last time who were teachers and educators and parents. And we abdicated our responsibility as adults to young people. It was like we sort of curled up into a fetal position or we got so angry or we became paralyzed. And I, there were schools that I was – there were a few schools that canceled classes. And that was more for the teachers than it was for the students um, after the election because people were so upset. And – 
you know, honestly, I think this is a moment of we are adults. What is our responsibility and how are we going to conduct ourselves? And now we have to we really need, no matter what you think about the who you're voting for or anything like that, is how are you going to show up in a way that treats people with dignity? Because it is so easy to have a self-righteous temper tantrum. I don't care what political bent you are. It is so easy to have a self-righteous temper tantrum, and it doesn't work because nobody listens to you. So it might make you feel better in the moment, but you're being completely ineffective. So we have got to figure out how to do this, not because we want to be nice and kind. We need to be effective because, you know, one of the cliches that I talk about a lot in my parenting um, speeches is it takes a village to raise a child. That's a cliche. Villages are complicated. Um, you know, there are people in our village who are can be completely crazy or really, really disagree with about stuff and do really crazy things. And we get really mad. And I think what's happening in the country and I do work overseas and I think and I agree with you about this feeling of anxiety is I think some of our anxiety is about the feeling that our our villages are falling apart. And that the foundation is falling apart. I also think one of the reasons we're feeling so anxious is the way I define happiness is like meaning beyond oneself and a sense of curiosity and meaningful social connection and a place to process and find peace in this world. Our culture is actually really good at convincing us the opposite is true for our happiness, right? Just focus on yourself. Success is getting a lot of money or like a lot of eyeballs on your social media. So don't have meaningful social connection. Um, all of those things and never find a place to process and find peace because then you'd realize how miserable you are. So it's one of the reasons why we're so anxious. So what we're doing is we are creating content and resources for all different kinds of people to manage ourselves better through this process because our leaders are not going to help us with this. They're not. We don't have a leader that I can see who's going to help us with this civility thing. It's going to come from us saying, our villages are losing. We are collectively losing our minds. We've got to stop. And you know where we can start, honestly? Honestly, is, and this might seem really weird for people, but for every parent who's listening to this in the United States who has their child in travel sports, I think travel sports and paying for teams for young people is one of the worst things that's ever happened to this country. It's one of the worst things that's ever happened for our villages. As soon as adults started getting paid to, to teach children and coach children in these teams, and as soon especially as Adidas and Under Armour and all those places got involved in young people's sports, this whole insanity of young people, of parents thinking that their kids are going to get Division One, this, and they're going to, and the glory that we get when they're nine years old and we get these crazy ideas in our heads. We are literally not seeing the abuse and the bullying that is happening of adults and the bad role modeling that is happening every single day in this country, across the country. I don't care what your politics are. You can be in the most progressive community in this country, and you will go to a soccer field, a basketball court, a football field, whatever, a lacrosse field, and you will see a parent or a coach or a ref abusing power to other people in totally egregious ways. And our young people see this every single day. And none of the adults do anything about it. And yet, so we can look at the politicians and we can blame them for how bad things are. I, we can, like, let's start with us. That's actually one of the first places that we need to start. Mm. And also, young people won't tell us what's going on with the coaches that are abusing them or the whatever adults who are mis misbehaving because they're so afraid of the expectations that their parents have. Like they don't want to tell their parents because the parent's going to tell the coach and then they're going to get punished. So this is such a part of our country that is like right in front of our face that nobody is doing anything about that actually, I mean, people are writing about it. People have written about how horrible AAU basketball is. People have written about gymnastics. Are you kidding me with this? 
And yet we don't collectively in our own lives think about the programs that we are putting in our, our and getting our children involved in. I mean, the last part of this is, because I worry so much about children's safety, is that if I go to a, a public school in the United States, I have to go get a, um, like a, a police, you know, my fingerprints, all that kind of stuff. None of those programs, AAU basketball, any of those, the hockey, any of those things, no, very rarely, like very rarely. And I, I have not seen an, a system mandate that any of those coaches have to have some kind of background check. And yet those those coaches are with our kids indep like independently. They're driving them all over the place sometimes. And they are with our children alone. And yet they don't have to have any kind of background checks. And coaches yell and scream and humiliate our children in ways that a teacher, if they were doing that systematically, they would get called into the principal's office so fast I mean, it's just the system in education, at least, does not allow for the humiliation and the emotional abuse of children. Athletics does all over the place. Mm. Yeah, and I guess bigger bigger picture, the message is, um, yes, when we look at what we're seeing on TVs and with sort of like the, the leaders, and like you said, across all parties, um, we're, I think, increasingly horrified. And at the same time, we can almost always find that near identical behavior in our own backyard. And, Absolutely. And, and if we feel powerless to do something on a larger scale, well, maybe we focus in on a much smaller scale. And that's actually the level that we can feel like, oh, I can actually say something or do something like on this level, I can make a difference. And if we do that at scale... Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. I mean, ima up. imagine if people went to a school board meeting and demanded civility amongst the people that were speaking at the school mm -hmm. board meeting. I think we could change the country. Mm. You, um, I want to start to come full circle in this conversation. Um, one of the things you shared with me before is that you have been, you know, as, as you're developing all these different things, um, as you're creating amazing tools and processes and programs and ideas to go out into the world and help millions of people, you're also one person um, <laughs> who is yeah. Yeah, like also interested and curious about your own personal development and evolution. <laughs> and so, so you've been kind of contemplating a, uh, a, a four-day walkabout and slash fast also? Yes, it's because I live in you this, tell me this more about state. This. It's happened to me. I'm not like hiking up the mountains barefoot with like a backpack of rocks in my, in my you know, now because like that happens in this town. Um, highly more irritating is like when I'm, when I'm hiking and I see people going up and down the mountain multiple times, <laughs> which also happens here. Right. So I'm not at that level yet, but... Um, you know, it's been a rough road. Um, it's been an exhausting road. I often feel like um, I'm talking about things in ways that people. Um, it's it's just been it's just exhausting. No, you know, I'm not gonna you know go around that. It's been really really tiring for a lot of different reasons and frustrating. And you know, um, so how do I maintain myself through the process? And I have you know, a team of people that's growing. And it's it's extraordinary what's happening with that. And in particular, in the international school world, we're doing more and more and more work. And it, it does feel like school administrators are um, moving into these conversations faster and more competently than when I first started out. And another thing about social media is young people are much more engaged with us in ways that never were possible. We have young people all over the world who are editing our work. I mean, truly, we have editors and advisors from all over the world who are editing what we do. So that's amazing. And at the same time, 
how, you know, you're asking me about like, so I've never really had a hobby. I've really been, I like to read like novels and, um, but I've been working hard for a really long time. So I'm getting ready. And I guess I'm going to say this out loud. So it's going to be much more likely I will do it is, um, did you, my husband make you do, did he set you up for this? (laughs) So yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, um, vision quest where, so there's these ones called the school of lost borders that my 18 year old son went to and he was 15, 16. And my husband went on it too. A little too intense for me because it's 11 days. And four of those days are you're by yourself in the nature, not eating anything with like a jug of water. I think I need to build up to that. So I'm going to go on a um, five day retreat, which is also outside. And again, I'm, you know, Washington, D.C. person. I didn't really grow up like going outside except for like the sidewalk. So um, I'm going to go outside and be outside and I'm going to, you know, really take a moment to disconnect and to think about what is it that um, how I want to show up in the world and how I want to continue to show up in the world. And how I want to, with this new project, with these young people, how do I, I mean, maybe that I won't think about this at all, but I want to figure out how to contribute in the best way I can to the issues that you raised about where we are in the country and um, how can we be more civil? Because the thing that, the incredible gift that I have, I'm so grateful for this, is it because I get to go to all these different communities, right? Rural communities, conservative, conservative communities, super religious communities. People that might really differ with me politically, but I have wonderful, wonderful, respectful relationships with those people. And I, I respect the work that they do. I respect the things that – how they show up in the world. I feel treated with dignity by them, and we talk about difficult things. And um, and so I have the benefit of being able to go around the country and be with people that are different from me all the time. And so I have more optimism about the ability for all of us to actually talk to each other. I don't demonize people because I'm I get I get to have these experiences constantly with people. And um, I think that's I am if there's anything I'm incredibly grateful for, it's that because I just get to talk to people that really disagree with me about things. And it's okay. Mm. So as we sit here um, in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? So for me, it's about um, being courageous to be uncomfortable but also knowing when it's too much and to stay in relationship with people, even when it's incredibly, incredibly hard. And it feels to me like if we do that, or if I'm able to do that, then I'm able to build the community that will be able to support me and selfishly be able to support me and be able to, and that I will be able to contribute to my community in a meaningful way. And that to me gives me purpose and meaning in a way that, you know, as I've talked about, things have been hard, really hard, um, but it sustains me and it gives me a lot of faith and a lot of um, feelings of optimism about being able to carry on. So for me, that's really what what a good life is. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.